Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into our Scale to Zero show. Uh, I'm Purushottam, co-founder and CTO of Cloudanix. For today's episode, we have Walter Heiduck with us. Walter is the founder and CEO of StackAware, a software as a SaaS provider that allows organizations to evaluate the risk of known vulnerabilities in their networks. By assessing the vulnerability scanner reports, security bulletins, and software bill of materials in a quantitative manner, StackAware lets you make informed risk management decisions. Walter, it's wonderful to have you in the show. For our audience who may not know you, do you want to briefly share about your journey? Sure. Thanks a lot for having me on. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. So you did a great job of summarizing what I'm currently working on. But uh, prior to that, I worked at a couple different enterprise software vendors and saw a lot of the same problems in, uh, you know, along my way. So decided to, uh, to, to do something about it by, by launching my own company. And, uh, and then prior to that, I spent most of my career in government working uh, both on Capitol Hill and as a military officer in the Marine Corps. And that kind of gave me a different background than a lot of people have in the, in the technology space. But I think I have a, a unique approach in terms of my, uh, you know, my, my disciplined focus on, on getting things done. And I, I think that's helped me uh, along the way, even though I don't have kind of a traditional background for, uh, for a company founder. Right. Makes sense. Uh, thank you for sharing your journey. So you write a lot about uh, vulnerability management and its challenges. I particularly loved your analysis of Palantir's container vulnerability management program. Uh, and you also recently wrote a blog post about uh, with your thoughts on national cybersecurity strategy laid out by U.S. government. I'd like to unpack some of these areas today, uh, particularly like how to set up vulnerability pro- management programs, what are the best practices, shortcomings, and how to work with SBOMs and stuff like that. So uh, there's a lot to discuss. So let's get into it. Uh, so the way we do uh, the show is we have two sections. The first section focuses on security questions. And the second section, which is a fun one, is more around rapid fire. Um, so let's start with the security questions. right? So when it comes to vulnerabilities, organizations should ideally be able to address uh, all of them if they have a defined sort of practice or process in place. right? Can you help us understand what's an ideal process or practice? Absolutely. So the first and most important thing I would say is make sure you have a process because I've seen organizations that take a somewhat ad hoc approach to vulnerability management. And there's some data on this. Uh, there was a Panaman report from, it was from a couple of years ago, but uh, you know, potentially about half of all organizations use a email and spreadsheet approach to vulnerability management. And you know that can work when you're when you're just starting out, but once you hit any sort of scale, you you need a really crisp and clean process in place. And and here are some of the things that that it should include. So first of all, you should have regular patching and update cadences, because if you can just update a piece of software to remove the vulnerability or to fix it, just do it. I mean that's that's the easiest thing to do in a lot of cases. So you know that should be your response. It gets a little more challenging though mm-hmm. when when you need to make trade-offs with with business priorities. So if you need to um, 
suffer downtime because you need to update uh, a certain software asset, or if you need to push out a new release of your own product for your customers, that's when it gets challenging. So uh, the key thing mm -hmm. that organizations should do is have clearly defined thresholds and actions to take ahead of time. Now, I've, I've just seen in my career, organizations large and small will take problems as they appear and, and address them in a, in a one-off manner. But the key is to have a process that can address all the conceivable outcomes and have an answer for what to do in every situation mm -hmm. that doesn't require a meeting and doesn't require you know, a single person to, you know, a, a senior leader to make a decision every time. There, there will be exceptions, of course, in, in, you know, unforeseen circumstances, but most circumstances can be foreseen. So having clear thresholds um, and timelines for, for resolving issues is, is really important. Happy to talk more about that, but that's at a high level. Okay, uh, that makes sense. And so more around having playbooks uh, for uh, your vulnerability management process. One of the things that you highlighted is that there could be challenges while um, applying patches or applying updates, right? Because you have some competing priorities. So all of us are sort of constrained by these, right? Either by time or people or budget. Uh, so what are some of the key areas that need to be covered when it comes to vulnerability uh, management? and particularly when starting up? Yeah, so I would say if you're going, if you're just starting your vulnerability management program, I would say you should focus on the exploitability of the vulnerability and use that as your method for prioritization. I know a lot of organizations use a CDSS, Common Vulnerability Scoring System based approach and that's kind of become the industry standard for vulnerability management programs. I would advise not doing that if, if you're just getting started. If, if, you're, if you don't have a lot of budget, a lot of resources, and you're just using, um, you know, kind of either open source or low cost commercial tools, most of the findings that you're getting, um, you know, unless you're building your own software, in which case you, you might get static analysis findings, most of the findings that you're going to get are going to be CVEs, which are common uh, vulnerability, <coughs> uh, common vulnerabilities and exposures. And there's a tool called the Exploit Prediction Scoring System, which the data is freely available, which gives you a probability of exploitation from zero to one, one being 100% uh, chance and zero being no chance of it being exploited. And really, I would recommend just prioritizing um, using the EPSS score. The, uh, the people who, who put together the, the model recently put out a paper and they showed that if you look at using EPSS for CVSS for prioritization, you can basically target um, one twelfth of the number of vulnerabilities that you would have to using CVSS if you just use EPSS to get the same result in terms of fixing exploitable mm -hmm. vulnerabilities. So my recommendation would be if, if you're not super sophisticated, uh, just use the EPSS to drive your remediation program. Mm -hmm. And then as you get more advanced, then that's when you should take into account things like asset value or, or you know, business, business value at risk. And that's, that's gonna, it's gonna be more challenging, but it'll give you kind of a more 
holistic, uh, a true risk picture. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can look at the probability of exploitation of a vulnerability and the, the business consequences of that happening, and then you can come up with a financial risk score. And that's really important for, for big or organizations when you're making budgeting decisions. You know, if you've got a vulnerability that is, uh, you know, it represents a risk of $10,000 a year mm -hmm. and the remediation is $100,000 a year, then that might be a risk that you want to accept because you don't want to spend you don't want to spend $100,000 to save $10,000. <laughs> now conversely, um, you know, if if the vulnerability represents a billion dollars in loss, which is a reasonable amount based on some of the breaches that we've seen, you know, the Equifax mm -hmm. breach, um, you know, that cost more than a billion dollars and uh, that was a single single vulnerability, you know, it's probably <laughs> worth a lot of money to fix that and and quickly too. So the the key is understanding that um, you know what what is the risk of a given vulnerability and then what is the cost of remediation and then also the the last thing I would say is is time. Most vulnerabilities are never exploited. Most most known C, most CVs most known CVs. vulnerabilities are never exploited. It yeah in any in any uh, kind of realistic type of scenario. They might be exploited by a security researcher in some very narrow circumstances, but most are never exploited by a malicious actor. But the ones that are, are exploited very quickly, relatively. Um, there's kind of an initial spike uh, when, when first published, and then there's kind of a steady exploitation uh, cadence over time. So those are the ones, the ones that are, are, are going to be exploited very quickly. You need to fix you know, you don't have days, you, you probably have hours to mm -hmm. fix those before you start getting targeted. So understanding that, and then you can push to the side the ones that are uh, less less likely to be exploited. Those can be fixed later, but you really need to move quickly with, with some of these key vulnerabilities as soon as they're identified. Yeah, I think we saw that with uh, Log4Shell, right, particularly uh, when it was uh, like announced there were many uh, attacks around that uh, that came to news, but now it has died down a little bit. But still, there are attacks happening even based on that because not everyone has addressed yeah. that yet, right? Uh, and that right. goes back to uh, what you were highlighting. Like rather than focusing on the CVSS score, maybe look at the exploitability. If you are not, uh, if somebody cannot exploit that in your environment, let's say you are not using Java or that log for cell log4j library, then you're you're not affected by it, right? It it doesn't make sense to spend hours and hours to figure out whether you are affected, uh, whether you need to address, what needs to be addressed and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you're on point there. So one of the things that uh, you highlighted, like with Equifax as well, right? Like there have been many cyber attacks uh, and over 60% of the companies are affected by it. And all of those begin with exploitability and vulnerabilities, right? And organizations have a glaring gap when it comes to their vulnerability management uh, process. So my question is, when it comes to managing vulnerabilities, where do organizations make mistakes? I would say they make mistakes by trying to boil the ocean, if you're familiar with that that uh, descript or that that phrase, meaning they mm -hmm. just say, you know, you must fix all eyes and criticals, meaning CVSS seven or greater. And mm -hmm. if you look at the the National Vulnerability Database, that's most 
vulnerabilities. Most CVEs are CVSS seven or higher. It's actually more rare to find something that's below that. So, you know, I agree. If you fix most vulnerabilities, you will reduce most of your risk. Yeah, that is that is a true statement. But the problem comes when you've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of known issues uh, in your network. So, uh, you know, security teams will sometimes say to engineering teams, you know, you need to fix all these issues. And then engineering will say, okay, mm -hmm. I've got 50,000, 150,000, 500,000, millions, potentially even issues, you know, it's, it's not even realistic to, to, to start to, to say that, you know, the, the engineering teams mm -hmm. will kind of just say, okay, whatever, they're, they're not even really paying attention to here. So um, you need to be very targeted in, um, in your recommendations from a security team perspective to say, hey, these are the top risks, you know, these are the criteria on even if you can't do a, a purely quantitative approach, you can say, you can have conditional approaches saying like, you know, if we have an internet facing asset with a vulnerability that has uh, uh, an EPSS score above this threshold, that needs to be fixed in mm -hmm. one day, you know, and then if it's uh, mm -hmm. in, in this bucket, then it can be fixed in, in this period of time. You'd, ultimately, you'd want to get to the point where you can kind of continuously measure your, your risk exposure, um, you know, and every organization should have a defined risk appetite for how much risk they're willing to accept. And then if you, if you exceed that level of risk, then that triggers an action to get back down below the, that, that love, that risk appetite and at a given velocity, which would be your risk, your risk tolerance. So, um, I would say taking a boil the ocean approach is probably the biggest problem that a lot of organizations have with vulnerability management. And then another one would be not having a consolidated picture of their network or their product. So for example, um, if, if you're running a network, having a full asset inventory is, is really critical because you can't fix vulnerabilities if you don't know that they're there and you can't mm -hmm. find out that vulnerabilities are there if you don't know what assets you have. So understanding you know what you have in operation what saas platforms you're using um, those types of things are, are really important for a vulnerability management program and then making sure that you've got a way to measure the risk from all those things so mm -hmm. you know a saas platform it's usually difficult to scan that for for vulnerabilities because you don't have access to to the underlying software but Understanding, you know, are you using a security ratings tool or do you have some sort of agreement with the vendor? Um, are you doing pen tests on the SaaS platform? Um, that, that type of thing, having those in place and knowing, you know, what your sources uh, of information for risk are and then what you're going to do with them. That can, that can help you um, avoid some of those common problems. Okay. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. There were many things that you highlighted. Uh, I think the, uh, the one that I like the most is don't just try to address everything uh, because it's called as critical uh, or high in the in the CVSS, but rather look at the exploitability. Does it apply to you? Maybe it makes mo uh, more sense to address those rather than looking at everything, uh, trying to f address everything. Um, so in this, is it more of a prioritization challenge? Is it more of a cultural challenge or is it more of a process challenge that you think organizations are facing? Yeah, I would say it's mostly a 
cultural or process challenge, not so much a technology challenge, because there are, like I mentioned, there are a lot of tools available that can allow you to make good risk decisions. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really a cultural problem. Um, on the security side, the security team will often feel kind of accountable for the security risk, which, you know, it's good that they feel on the hook for it. Mm -hmm. But but frankly, in my opinion, I think that the business leadership, you know, whether that be product management or, you know, business line general manager or a CIO in a big organization or even the CEO, you know, those are the people who should be making the risk decisions. They shouldn't be saying, hey, you know, that's not my problem. Security is taking care of it. That's the wrong mindset because business leaders need to incorporate every risk that the that the organization faces, you know, whether it's you know, they need to make revenue, they need, uh, you know, deal with technological issues, they need to deal with competitors, they need to deal with regulators. So having a holistic picture of all of your, uh, of, of the risk, mm -hmm. that's something that a business leader needs to do. And where security is just focused, obviously, on security, um, but they shouldn't be the, they should be the ones who are advising the, the business leader, and they should be implementing the business leader's decisions, but they shouldn't be owning the risk. They should be the ones, um, you know, just providing a, a good picture. They should be illuminating the risk. And so I think organizations that move in that direction where business leadership is much more involved, mm -hmm. um, then the business leaders can say, hey, I'm really worried about this happening. I'm not so worried about that happening. And then the security team can say, okay, well, you know, if you're really worried about that, then here's what you need to do to fix it. And, and then here's how much it'll cost. And then the business leader can make an informed decision. So my yeah, I think the challenge is mainly uh, cultural, and then then on a process level, you know, not having a process in place. If you need to ping the CEO every time you've got you detect a CVE, like the CEO is eventually going to say, "Hey, stop! Like, just mm -hmm. figure it out." So you you can't do that. You you need to have leadership set high level uh, risk appetite, you know, approve a, a, a program for dealing with things, and then um, the security and engineering teams need to go ahead and execute. Yeah, I, I love how you put it that uh, security teams are advising, but ultimately it's the business who is accountable, right? It's, we cannot just say that, hey, we have security engineers, they will take care of everything. It's not our job, right? It's right. at the end of the day, it's the whole organization who is responsible for it. Uh, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, one of the things that you highlighted uh, is that for uh, a proper a vulnerability management program, you need to at least understand what assets you have, right? Understanding your asset inventory is key. Uh, nowadays, uh, like we use a lot of open source uh, uh, libraries and uh, and like SBOMs are becoming a key building block in enterprise software. And that is sort of introducing supply chain risk uh, management related issues, right? So why do you think organizations need a software bill of materials in the first place? If you want to, if you can highlight that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, great point. So I would say at, at this point, most of vulnerability management is software supply chain uh, security because only if you're developing your own software in-house, which is a lot of organizations these days, but only if you're doing that are, or do you have, you know, first party uh, code, code security risk, but most of it is third party risk. It's either 
open source libraries or proprietary code that's running in your network from another company, or maybe it's a SaaS platform that you have your data stored in. So most security risk, in, in my assessment, is software supply chain security risk in, in today's environment. So understanding that in a way that you can make good decisions is really important. And now the way that most organizations deal with this today, I don't think is, is super, um, is super effective. So most organizations today take kind of a, a, a two-tiered approach. If they are talking about open source software, mm -hmm. they may run software composition analysis on it, see if there are any known vulnerabilities in it. Um, I've even seen some kind of hilarious examples of security teams sending open source um, project managers security questionnaires, which they don't fill out because there's no, why would they? They're yeah, know, not yeah. getting paid to, to do it. Um, so, so there's that, there's kind of that. And then there's the other thing, which is, you know, okay, this is a commercial, um, provider, proprietary piece of software. I'll make them fill out a questionnaire, uh, maybe get uh, an audit report. If they're a SaaS provider, get SOC 2 or ISO 27001 or do security scorecard or FitSight or, or mm -hmm. whatever to, uh, to evaluate them. Um, and it kind of treats the risk as being different, um, based on where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. And I would say, it's, it's all the same general type of, of risk. It's, it's a, uh, the, the chance of your data's confidentiality, integrity, or availability being impacted mm -hmm. by a malicious actor. Now, you may have different tools to impact different parties. So the open source folks, you know, you, you kind of need to ask nicely mm -hmm. for them to, to do something for you. Um, or, you know, potentially you could, you could fund open source projects, which I, I'm an advocate for. Uh, and on the commercial side, you'll, you'll have contractual obligations, uh, you know, ways that you can, you can enforce things. Um, but coming back to the question about SBOMs, SBOMs allow you to depict that very complex supply chain in a structured way um, that allows you to talk about it consistently. And, uh, you know, whether it's a piece of open source software that uh, you're running in your network, or it's, you know, a, a SaaS provider, maybe a SaaS provider is running a, a, a piece of open source software on top of, um, you know, AWS or, or Azure. Mm -hmm. SBOM, specifically the, uh, the Cyclone DX format, can depict that. It can show that this SaaS provider is running this open source library on top of AWS. And then that can allow you mm -hmm. to make really good risk decisions if you have the tools to evaluate it. Um, correctly, you know, there, uh, we can, we can talk more about this, but S bombs can also be kind of just a, a data dump of information. If you don't know how to absorb it, mm -hmm. then you're not going to be able to make effective decisions. But if you do, you can really, you know, understand what are all your dependencies throughout the entire supply chain, um, down to, you know, your, your fourth and, and, and greater parties, you know, those, your suppliers, suppliers and their suppliers and things like that, which can really have impacts to your business continuity, mm -hmm. you know. There's examples of, you know, Slack, when Slack was using uh, AWS for, for its hosting and AWS went down, then, uh, you know, Slack went down as well. So you may say, hey, I'm an Azure mm -hmm. shop. I don't care about AWS. But if you're using Slack, you actually should care about AWS because yeah. they use AWS. Uh, oh, it's, it's funny that you highlighted about that open source uh, uh, questionnaire thing. I think recently somebody tweeted uh, um, like an open source library contribute owner, I think tweeted that uh, somebody had asked them to fill up a questionnaire with 
some hundred plus questions and uh, you're just <laughs> laughing at it. So uh, that is so <laughs> on point, right? Um, so I want to continue the discussion a little further on the S-bombs. And we have seen that there are multiple uses of S-bombs, right? Including like security or regulatory compliance or marketing or sales, enable- sales enablement. Uh, in 2023, we have heard many organizations indicate that they want to prioritize uh, this SPOM analysis, SPOM data. Uh, so my question is, as far as interpreting and using the SPOM data effectively, what are some of the biggest challenges you, are, you see organizations face? Yeah, great, great question. So having a, a program in place to analyze, to consume and analyze SBOMs is the first important step. Before you start asking your vendors to provide SBOMs, you better have a plan in place to do something with them. Now, I know there are tons of organizations that make their vendors fill out security questionnaires and then don't read them. Uh, I don't think that's a good practice. I think that mm-hmm. that actually hurts security because then you're distracting your vendor from doing something uh, you know, potentially more productive. So it's important that you have a plan in place. For example, you know, which vendors will need to provide SBOMs? How frequently will they need to provide them? Mm-hmm. What do you do with, you know, if you identify known vulnerabilities in libraries in those SBOMs, what are your, you know, what are your demands going to be or your requests going to be of your vendors? And then, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a key piece of that is how are the vendors going to communicate with you about their SBOM? So if they're just emailing you kind of a PDF or just sending you uh, a JSON in an email, that's that's going to be very difficult to manage in any sort of effective way. So, yeah. you know, having a, a, a consolidated system for managing your SBOMs is, is critical. And then also being able to communicate about the vulnerabilities um, identified in those components, uh, you know, the pieces of the SBOM is important. And that's where VEX, which is the Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange format, mm-hmm. comes into play. So I mentioned Cyclone DX. Cyclone DX has the capability to include vulnerability uh, disclosures as part of an SBOM or even separately as just an entirely separate document. And I think that's really critical mm-hmm. because when you run, if you if you analyze any given SBOM, you look at all the libraries included, you'll you'll probably pretty quickly find lots and lots of CVEs. And we discussed you know, how it's important to not try to boil the ocean. So the vendor ahead of time can say, hey, we've scanned our own software. We know that there are these vulnerable libraries in it and that these libraries have these uh, CVEs in them. However, based on our technical analysis, there's no, uh, you know, there's no way an attacker could access these because of some, uh, you know, maybe the code is written a certain way or, or there's some compensating control in the case of a SAS deployment. Mm-hmm. And using a VEX statement uh, in, in a way that can be easily consumed by, you know, a, a risk management system that can really help streamline the process because otherwise you're going to have this back and forth where, you know, Hey, I got your S bomb and I saw all these vulnerabilities. What's your, what's the deal here? And then the vendor kind of says, Oh, I don't know. I'll get back to you. And you know, that wastes a lot of time and it doesn't really help with, with risk management. So I'd say having a program in place and then having a plan also to either provide or receive next statements is, is really critical to using S bombs effectively. Yeah, uh, that makes sense because uh, I'm pretty sure all of us must have seen uh, like the vendor questionnaire and uh, once it is filled out during the procurement process, nobody looks at it. Uh, And also uh, the challenges of 
sort of sending your uh, SBOM analysis data and then uh, how do the organizations consume it? Um, so a follow-up question on that is, like there are uh, organizations are also trying to set up tools, right? So that let's say they can take in the SBOM data from the vendors and uh, set up processes around it. So what should organizations do if there are limitations in the SBOM tools or the formats uh, to make sure that they are managing these uh, vulnerabilities and software components uh, properly? Yeah, great, great point. So something that I have kind of proposed or or a term I've coined is called a synthetic SBOM, which is basically if a vendor can't, they don't have the technical capacity to provide you with an SBOM or it's incomplete or you just want to do your own analysis or your own diligence, you can build, you can create an SBOM for a piece of software that you're using, even if the vendor didn't give it to you. Now, obviously it's not kind of the official version, but if say I know I've got this piece of, you know, the SaaS tool that I know mm -hmm. it runs on top of this AWS service, you know, mm -hmm. I can create my own SBOM um, saying, okay, I've got this piece of software, it's running on top of this, this cloud platform. Um, and then maybe you know it has these other ex these other dependencies that I know about just from talking to the vendor or from doing some research on them. Uh, and then you can build your own structured depiction of software supply chain risk, even without the vendor telling you uh, mm -hmm. things. And especially for cloud deployments, cloud-based software, it's you know sometimes it's opaque; you can't entirely see what's going on. So using mm -hmm. a, a synthetic SBOM, you can you can create kind of just. Uh, the beginnings of a structured depiction of your supply chain risk. So, so that's one way you can help um, improve the picture and and uh, and manage risk holistically. Okay, uh, that that makes a, a lot of sense. Uh, that's uh, helpful as well when you do not when uh, like a, an, as an organization you do not have access to your vendors, uh, vulner like S bombs to do the analysis and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, thank you for sharing that. So um, I just want to quickly change the topic to uh, something new, like some new technology that's uh, been very popular nowadays. So uh, chat GPT, right? And uh, everyone ha has been playing with it and everyone is raving about it. And in fact, Google uh, recently launched Bard to compete with uh, chat GPT as well, right? So now let's say, I'm a security engineer. Uh, I can use ChatGPT or Bard to generate, uh, let's say, security policies uh, or the patching instructions and use these uh, in my organization. Is that sort of a magic trick to solve all my security problems, particularly in infrastructure security, let's say? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be any true magic trick, but ChatGPT is pretty good at, at doing certain things. So um, I would say your your security policies, I would try to avoid boilerplate as much as possible. So um, your, your security policy should be very concise and clear. Um, mm -hmm. And ChatGPT, I've, I've tried to create security policies using ChatGPT. Uh, I even tried to use create a security policy for using ChatGPT mm -hmm. with ChatGPT. Um, and, and I found it to be relatively boilerplate. Um, kind of vague and and not not specific. That's because it's a you know generative AI tool. It kind of just mm -hmm. assembles, amalgamates a lot of information from different sources. Um, but it definitely can be useful for for security purposes. Um, you know, obviously a key is is understanding. You know, a what are you give what 
data are you feeding it? What's happening with that data? Um, so making sure you don't give it sensitive things like secrets or you know PII or, or anything like that um, is is important. And then also the output, making sure that the output is is valid. You know, don't take it at face value. It's just a soulless machine. It doesn't have feelings. It doesn't <laughs> think really. It just provides you something. Uh, but it can definitely help in a lot of uh, areas that, especially areas that require currently require a lot of manual analysis. So, you know, I've been using ChatGPT to do things like analyze um, uh, assets. For example, if you get a vulnerability scanner and you run you run it uh, against your hosts, you'll get some information about you know the operating system, what the you know the the DNS is, the IP address, and you know if you plug that into ChatGPT and give it some some rules, it can actually tell you, oh, this is probably an endpoint, this is probably a server, this is probably you know a different type of asset. So so we're experimenting at Stackaware with with using that for asset mm -hmm. classification, and then also for for taking unstructured vulnerability reports. So if a company posts a blog blog post about a certain vulnerability, uh, turning that into structured vulnerability uh, disclosures using VEX. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something else that we're also experimenting with. Although ChatGPT uh, hasn't been able, I haven't tried it with GPT-4. That's that's on my list. Three, GPT-3.5, it, it didn't do a great job uh, with that. But I think, you know, eventually in the future, that'll, that'll happen. So understanding mm -hmm. how to use these tools effectively to uh, reduce toil and to reduce uh, manual tasks is, is going to be important, but at the same time, doing it securely is is also critical. Okay, uh, uh, that makes sense. Uh, one another question that I have around it is like with any new technology, right? Uh, uh, any big innovation, one question that comes to mind uh, to folks is, "Am I going to lose my job?" Right. So, do you do you think like uh, these generative AI tools with large language models? take away jobs from security professionals? I, I think, yes, bottom line, it, it, they will. And uh, the key question you should ask yourself if you're a security professional who's worried about generative AI, you should ask yourself, what, what, am I do, what, is, what is my job? What does my job look like? Am I doing a lot of copying, copying and pasting? Am I transferring between formats? Am I... Kind of doing repetitive things if so then you should probably be worried and what you should be doing is you should focus on the higher level um, aspects of your job like the thinking uh, of, of your job rather than the doing because chat gpt is going to get very good at doing uh kind of digital drudgery in the future or, or, mm -hmm. or generative ai in general will be very good at that but what it's not really great at is thinking it, it's not you know it's not like not yet, at least like the Terminator, where it can come up, mm -hmm. you know, give itself a mission and, and and do things. So the thinking is is really where humans <laughs> need to add the value, the higher level abstraction. You know, asking why am I doing this is is really important. And mm -hmm. you know, if if you can't answer that question for your, for the task that you're doing right now, then you should probably think hard and you should be worried. But for people who know how to employ these tools effectively. Uh, you know, I think it's going to really improve their productivity and it's going to make them much more effective and, and help security in general. Makes sense. So, uh, like, it will aid in improving a security engineer's life uh, unless you are doing repetitive boilerplate uh, type of work. So, yeah, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, the 
last question that i have is around the announcement that us government had uh, on the national cybersecurity strategy right uh, it focuses a lot on national threat actors to military security practices to software security and many more areas right for folks who might not have got a chance to read and digest it uh what's your take on it and how can security uh, how are security practitioners affected by this announcement yeah great great question so i think there are three main takeaways from the national cybersecurity strategy one is that the united states is clearly saying that we're not just going to respond to cyber attacks with another cyber attack we may respond with a missile strike or you know an invasion or something like that so if you're a business leader, uh, understand that mm-hmm. you might be part, you might find yourself in the middle of either a cyber war or a real war um, unexpectedly. So, so you should focus, you should, you should incorporate that into your risk assessments uh, going forward. So that, that's number one. Number two is that uh, at least the, the current administration, the Biden administration is focused on uh, shifting the burden of cybersecurity to software manufacturers. And now I, I, I have mm-hmm. a major issue with their approach. I think that um, it's a very, uh, it's a, it, it is kind of a boil the ocean approach and it's a, a not a very, um, not a very specific or detailed or actionable one. And, and my fear is that uh, mm-hmm. another, yet another, government standard uh, will, will, will come out. Um, and, and technology companies and, and companies in general already have tons of regulations that they need to comply with. Um, and, and having competing sets of regulations mm-hmm. is, is very, uh, very difficult, especially for, for smaller companies. Um, you know, I think that this uh, proposed kind of shifting the burden to, to the software makers, it's, it's really kind of just crowning uh, the, the incumbents you know, whether it be the big tech companies, you know, mm-hmm. crowning them as, as kind of the dominant players because they have all these teams of people who can sort through all these regulations, um, you know, and, and focus on complying with them. And then, and then also sometimes these, these compliance frameworks, they're not even helpful to security. You know, I give an example, the, the FedRAMP standard, the uh, Federal Risk Assessment and Management mm-hmm. Program, which is required for all companies that are selling uh, SaaS or cloud services to the government, it requires you, it basically right. penalizes you if you find too many vulnerabilities in your software. But the thing is, if I'm a customer, I want my vendor looking for vulnerabilities. I want them to find as many vulnerabilities as possible before an attacker does. You know, it's it's not finding the vulnerability that hurts you. It's the vulnerability being exploited and you can't prevent it from being exploited if you don't find mm-hmm. it. So, so that's number two. I, I I will push back strongly on on the Biden administration's plans there. I don't think it's well thought out. I, I think uh, you know they're they're just trying to approach the problem simplistically. There's not a lot of nuance there, and you know I provided some some very uh, concise examples of of that in, in some of my blog posts, which I think you'll link to in the show notes. So so that's number two. Number three is I think a cyber insurance uh, national cyber insurance backstop is is coming, and. Uh, what this means for business leaders is that basically the government mm-hmm. is going to um, potentially step in if there's a major catastrophic cyber event and bail out the insurance providers, the, you know, the cyber insurance. 
so that's that's a great way to end the security questions uh, section here are a few important points which stood out for me the first one is exploit prediction scoring system which is also known as epss is a better way to understand and prioritize vulnerabilities as it uses data driven approach to determine the likelihood or probability of a vulnerability to be exploited the second one is as part of vulnerability management programs document the process design playbooks for like patches and uh, updates and define thresholds and actions for the identified vulnerabilities to prioritize vulnerability actions there is no one size fits all approach instead understand your asset inventory and its exploitability um so let's go to the rapid fire uh, section now uh the Uh, the first question in the rapid fire section is: If you were a uh, um, superhero of cybersecurity, which power would you choose to have in you? Yeah, I'd say the superpower I'd love to have would be able to snap my fingers and immediately identify the financial risk of any sort of security situation, and then also know what the uh, the cost of the control would be, and not just kind of the, the the initial price tag but the total cost of ownership so you know if you told me that uh there's this advanced persistent threat that's trying to target my systems and then that the, to mitigate that risk i need to buy uh you know an inter, uh, endpoint detection and response tool you know understanding the the cost of, of each would be really would be really nice because then i could make a good decision on how to proceed <laughs> okay sure <laughs> makes sense uh So the next question is what is the biggest myth or misconception you have heard in cybersecurity? Yeah, the biggest myth that I usually have encountered is the the regulators require this or compliance requires this or legal requires this because I I feel like sometimes people will hear someone say something and then, you know, someone else will hear that person repeat it and it's kind of a game of telephone where these requirements get passed down um you know between various people and by the end it comes out you know some developer is is trying to do something and he asks why you know why am i doing this and the uh, his manager will say oh because mm-hmm. compliance or legal says we have to do it where legal might have said something more general more more vague or or more uh, kind of broad and mm-hmm. left it up to engineering and then engineering or left it up to security and then security interprets it as one thing and then security uh talks to engineering and engineering interpreted interprets it as, as another and i feel like this can really create a lot of uh, headache for organizations because one sometimes they do things that aren't really required uh, and then two sometimes they attempt to do things that are required but they don't do them in a way that actually meets the intent of of the standard or of the framework or mm-hmm. of the regulatory obligation so that's probably the biggest myth or misconception that i hear so interpretation losing the context or the real challenge a real problem in the interpretations yeah makes makes right. a lot of or sense or the real the real requirement yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh the last uh, question that i have is what advice would you give to your 25 year old self starting in security Yeah the the biggest piece of advice I would give is that you should try to get your hands dirty 
with solving problems as soon as possible. And mm -hmm. it's, it's helpful to study, you know, reading books and listening to other people and reading blogs and things like that can help. It's certainly something you should do. You should always be a student, but solving problems, real problems will teach you so much so quickly that you won't be able to learn in, <clears throat> in books or in schools or in courses. So pick a problem, you know, if it's just a problem that, that you face, um, and figure out how to solve it. And then the key is standardizing and documenting how you solve that problem. And that will really pay you dividends going forward because once you've solved a mm -hmm. problem, you don't want to have to solve that same problem again. If you've written it down uh, in, in a way that other people can use, then you've created something valuable for, for everyone. So that'd be my, my biggest piece of advice is just start solving problems as soon as possible. Uh, that makes a lot of sense because particularly in security, it changes uh, quite uh, quickly, right? So if you just read and don't practice or don't uh, experiment, then you will never catch up uh, to the latest uh, developments in the security area. So yeah, that that's on point. Uh, so thank you so much, Walter, for uh, coming to the show and sharing your insights. I, I particularly learned a lot around the vulnerability management and the spam analysis and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming to the show. Well, I appreciate you having me on and uh, it was a good conversation. Thank you. And to our viewers, thank you for watching. Hope you have learned something new. If you have any questions around security, share those at skill2zero.com. We'll get those answered by an expert, expert in the security space. See you in the next episode. Thank you.